Sometimes studying the Bible can feel overwhelming and confusing. Grounded in Truth with Janet Dennison will help you learn to study, understand, and apply God's Word to your daily life. His Word is true. And guess what? It's for everyone. So thanks for joining us today as we dive into Scripture together. Welcome to Lesson 14. It is chapter 9. We're going to look at the first 13 verses of the book of Romans. Paul is going to express his grief over his Jewish people, his homeland of Israel, and all that God intended for them. And there are so many theological essays written on Romans chapters 9 through 11. The reason that is, is because it is a parenthesis in the book of Romans. It's a why na- why this complete change of mood. Did he stop writing here? Did he uh, spend some time? He had a thought when he finished chapter 8 and talked about the glories of heaven, the confidence we should have, the victory that we get to live with, knowing we're going to heaven. And then he puts a pause here before he gets to chapter 12, where he talks about what it is to know the will of God and to be live as a sacrifice, a life sacrificed for his service. So chapters 9 to 11 are considered some of the most difficult scripture in all of the Bible to interpret. I think a lot of it is because it is Paul to first century church. So why should we study it? Some people don't. Some people who teach the book of Romans go directly from 8 and straight into 12. And I thought about that and didn't want to. These three chapters are in our Bible for a reason, and they're not just about the first century. So let's ask ourselves, why do these three chapters matter to us? Paul's going to interrupt this systematic theology he's been developing to look at the Jewish brothers in the church in Rome and talk directly to them that they need Christ too. And I wonder why. So, sometimes they're difficult to interpret, but it's been fun to say, why do I have these, Lord, to teach now? Why is this my job to teach these in this era of history? So, the first thing we do is realize if it's in Scripture, it's truth. If it's in scripture, it's for us. This is part of God's revelation to us. And if you study the Bible as a whole, you can see a progression of God's covenant relationship with people from the beginning in the uh, Garden of Eden when no covenant was necessary except that they live and enjoy life and avoid that tree. And that covenant was broken when they ate of the fruit of that tree. But today, Paul's words are going to emphasize the sovereignty of God throughout history. The covenant with Adam and Eve was broken, and so he made a covenant with Abraham. And then the covenant moved 
to the covenant with Moses and the laws. And then he made covenant agreements with the prophets, giving them, I promise you'll be redeemed and come back out of slavery. And then he said, there's going to be a Messiah. And then there was a Messiah. The final covenant relationship God will ever make with his people was made through the life and death of his own son, where God gave everything in order to bring people to himself. The nation of Israel knew more about God than anyone else, and yet most of them refused to receive Jesus as their Messiah. Most of Israel wanted their Messiah to be a King David, to rule the world, to put Israel at the top of the world powers. They wanted a Messiah who would overthrow Rome and give them back their land and their position in the world. And Jesus did not do that. He did not come to do that. Jesus came to give them heaven. So why did so many Jewish people refuse him? It's because they didn't want him. Why do people refuse Jesus today? A lot of it's for those same reasons. They don't want someone to tell them how they should or shouldn't live. They don't want a king in their life. They want to rule their own lives. It's the basis of almost every sin, and that is self. And I think that's why we have chapters 9 to 11. People refuse to live with Jesus as their Lord today because they really are satisfied to live with Jesus as the one they think about or acknowledge, maybe on Easter and Christmas. Other people look back on classes they went to as a child or maybe uh, some things their mom made them do when they were kids, and they think they belong to Jesus because they remember a time when they went to some classes. Sometimes people think they're a Christian because they're not Buddhist or they're not Hindu, and so I guess I'm a Christian. And right now in our own country, there are people who think that if they're good Americans, that means they're good Christians too. That's not ever the truth of Scripture. We are one nation under God if we're under God. And we're not one nation under God if we're not. And that's the truth of God's Word. I don't want you to doubt your salvation here or wonder about it. Nobody should have to. You should be abundantly aware of the presence of the Lord in your life. You should know He's there. You should be able to know that you have a love of the Lord and that you walk with God. And so don't doubt your salvation, but be assured of it. We all have people in our lives who think they belong to God, but maybe they're not positive, or maybe they've never really understood what that means. These chapters speak to them, and they speak to you so that you know how 
to speak to them? What do they need to know? How do you bring that person who may go to a Christian church on Easter and Christmas and appreciate some of the things they know about Christianity, how do you move that person into an actual faith in Jesus as Lord? That's what these chapters can do. So let's look at them with that in mind. In the NIV, They titled this whole entire section of scripture as Paul's anguish over Israel. It isn't really his anguish over the land as much as it is his homeland, his people, his brothers in God, his Jewish brothers. It's for the nation of people who believed, who were raised to see themselves as God's favored, God's chosen, and thought they were okay with God because of their lineage, their understanding, their way of life, their customs of life. And Paul, in his words, expresses his grief over the fact they have that confidence instead of confidence in their Messiah. So remember, Paul's already said, he's already taught that Abraham's faith is what was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't his obedience to the laws because they didn't exist yet. It was his faith. It is your faith that allows you to be righteous as well. So our caution is to share Paul's anguish over the people in our own churches, our own families, our own country that may believe they're good enough for heaven, but have never done what Paul said is necessary to be made good enough for heaven. They've never really made Jesus their Savior and their Lord. And so let these chapters remind you of what that difference is, that even though they may think they have a faith, they lack a saving faith in Jesus. Paul's first words, I think, uh, say it all. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, I have great sorrow, and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul begins chapter 9. After this glorious message from chapter 8, he says, I have to stop here. I can't go on because I can't talk about this glory if I think there are people who believe they have it and don't. And he turns to speak to the people in the church in Rome that probably grew up Jewish and therefore felt already chosen. Even if they were in the Christian church, there was always an air of superiority in those that had been Jewish and came into Christianity. They felt like they were farther ahead in this faith journey. And Paul has to say, no, the journey started over. And Paul's first words express this utter 
anguish he feels at thinking people could think they're Christian and they're not. They're still living in the Jewish faith. That's what chapters 9 to 11 are about. So Paul's words for us today, are we willing to speak God's biblical truth through the power of his Holy Spirit? Are we willing to feel anguish over the people who are marginal or even lost that we know? Do we have great sorrow because there are people who think they know that are going to heaven, but they don't know it for sure? And for me, it was this. Do I really love people enough to grieve their lostness? That is how we should feel as we go into these next verses. I want to care like Paul does about the people I'm not certain of. I've often said, as a Bible teacher, my single greatest fear is to give just enough Jesus to be like an inoculation of the faith. They get just enough of the virus to not catch the whole thing. That's my fear. That's why I don't teach an entertaining Bible lesson. I teach what Paul said. That's a big calling in my life. So forgive me if some of these words you find offensive or are cause issue. I would rather make you angry than cause you to miss the truth. And so let's walk into this caring about lost people like Paul does. Paul says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed. Let me stop there and say that in the original language means I could wish this if it was even possible, but it isn't. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul grieved that in the beginning he had been a zealot against Christ, not for him. As you look back on your life, do you grieve the people you had the chance to share Jesus with and didn't? Do you grieve a past that might have caused other people to not know Jesus? All of us have those moments in our lives. Paul understood that. He grieved, too, some of his own choices. He's talking about the people of Israel. He said, theirs was an adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. He said, their entire history was about knowing God. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. He said, they had it all. Now apply this to Americans. There isn't a city or a town in this nation 
where someone couldn't have access to the Word of God. What's changing is some of our smaller churches are closing. There are regions of our country that are 2% Christian. That's where we're at in America today. I grieve those areas that may have lost all of God's word. A lot of churches have made adjustments to be more popular. I grieve that maybe somebody can come to that church and not be given the full truth of God's word. We're still in this era today. We have all of the ability to know Jesus in this country, all of the freedom to choose Christ, and yet so many don't. Do you share Paul's anguish over that? Paul gives a perfect illustration of the point he's trying to make. He says, not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by he who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This verse bothers a lot of people because does that mean God hates people? Let me explain this story. God knew before Jacob and Esau were ever born, they were twins in the womb when he said the older will serve the younger. God knew Jacob was going to walk with him, not Esau. The fact that God knew that didn't mean he caused it. The fact that God knew that didn't mean that it would have been his plan. It just means that Jacob and Esau were going to be born with the freedom to choose, and God knew it was Jacob that would choose him and Esau would not. That's why Jacob would be elected and Esau would not be elected. That's why it says, Jacob, I loved. And Esau, when it says, I hated, it means he couldn't be with me. He wasn't of me. Hated simply meant against me. So Paul's point to all of his Jewish listeners, readers of this letter to Rome, to all of them, he says, you have to know that same genetics, same family, same mom and dad, same education in the faith doesn't mean you're in the faith. It's never been true. Jacob was in the faith. Esau was not. That's this lesson for us today. It isn't about bloodline. It isn't about experiences. It's about our choice of Jesus Christ. It's our choice of the covenant agreement that God has made with us through Jesus that defines who is saved. Never find confidence in, well, I think I'm a Christian. Find your confidence in the assurance that you are. You've chosen Jesus. So why does this passage matter? Because of that. Um, my husband likes to use this illustration. He says, I never do a wedding 
And then afterwards, ask the bride and groom, well, do you think you're married? That would be a silly question. Nobody is wondering if they're married or not. You know if you're married. You, with that same confidence, you know you should you sh have stepped into that relationship with the Lord as well. Just like you don't have to wonder if you're married, you don't have to wonder if you're a Christian. If you have stepped into that, remember, he's going to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is your faith belief. Christian doesn't mean that you're sin-free. It doesn't also mean that you go to church every Sunday or every week. It doesn't mean you put a lot of money in the plate or you don't. Those are faith actions. James will say, you're known by your works. I believe in going to church. I believe in giving. I believe God's called us to that. It's not what makes you saved. You're saved because you chose Jesus as your Lord. To the Jewish people who thought their life was so superior to some of these Gentiles, they obviously were the best ones with God. Paul is saying, you don't know that. Talk to me about what you have done with Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. So our message today, be careful who you presume to be saved. Paul is taught that everyone who's been saved has been given God's Holy Spirit. I am confident when I see Jesus in a person. And if you look for Jesus in a person, you can really find him. It's an interesting practice to bring into your life. You'll see the work of Jesus in a person's life, the evidence that he is there. I like the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? I look for God dwelling in a person's temple. What then shall we say, Paul says, is God unjust because he took Jacob but not Esau? Is God unjust? Not at all. This in the original language is Paul or me looking at this camera going, absolutely not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God is love, according to 1 John 4, 8. God is love. His desire is that all would be saved. What this verse means is God is perfectly knowledgeable. He knows who's a Jacob and he knows who's an Esau. He will have compassion on those who have chosen his son. He's not going to have compassion on those who have not. That's what this verse means. He will have mercy when he knows that person has chosen to receive his mercy, his gift. I put it this way, because God's judgment is perfect, every single person who is supposed to go to heaven will. God perfectly knows who belongs there. So today, who do you know that needs a closer relationship with God? Who do you know that you've been worried about for years, who thinks 
they've made Jesus Lord, but they don't really understand what that means. If you don't see Jesus in a person, if you don't see the presence of Christ in a person, get to know him more than you might. Learn their story. I think the main lesson for us to learn this week is that apathy about others is not a compassionate witness. And that, for me, was the convicting lesson. I tend to allow people the consequences of their choices. God does. I should grieve them, like Paul does as well. God wants us to love other people so much that we will feel about them like Paul. We would give our lives for their salvation. Sometimes we want a better Thanksgiving dinner than we want the salvation of that family member. There's a time, there's a place to talk to people about the Lord. There are words to use to talk to people about the Lord. One of the reasons God gave you his Holy Spirit is so that he could author your words. When there's someone you want to share the love of Christ with, when there's someone you want to talk to about becoming a Christian, and your next thought is, I don't know what to say, I don't know if I should say it, I don't know what to say or when to say it, the next thing is the prayer. Because it isn't about what you think or what you know. The next thing is to ask Jesus, Lord, do you want me to say something? And if so, what do you want me to say? And I always pray, please, Lord, don't let me speak. Let me just be used by you to speak. It's all the difference in the world. Jesus knows what to say. Jesus knows if they're his brother or sister or not. How important is it that you heighten the awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and with that same compassion for the Lord, care about that person you know, and God will do the rest. Pray about that this week, and then I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Grounded in Truth podcast. If you would like to receive our studies in your inbox each week, you can subscribe at foundationswithjanet.org. We would love to help you study God's word. Each week, Janet talks about how to apply scripture to your daily lives so that you can live a life that God is able to bless. We know you'll be encouraged as you build your life on the solid foundation of God's word. Again, to subscribe, just go to foundationswithjanet.org. We'll see you there.